purpose of this series is to give us hope, victory in the world where it looks like Satan is active and Satan is winning. And then last, to help us anticipate ultimately being in God's presence forever. As the book, as, as Revelation ends, it talks about heaven and it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. So that anticipation, I think, makes it all worth it. So in today's lesson, the issues that the book of Revelation raises, uh, there's a ton of them. So much so that sometimes this keeps people from actually diving into the book of Revelation. Uh, what happens is typically you get one of two people, or one or two approaches toward the book. Uh, some people think that the issues are so great and the book is so mysterious, they'd rather not deal with it. And that's the way I did for years. <laughs> Unfortunately, I thought, I don't know anything about the book of Revelation. Don't ask me to teach it or preach from it. I'm not going there. And, and unfortunately, I missed out on some blessings when, it, when I took that attitude. Uh, then there are people who come at the book of Revelation with their own twist of particular interpretation that turns it into the wildest book you could ever imagine. And, and most likely ideas that were never intended to come out of the book of Revelation. So we're going to look at those. Those are the two extremes we don't want to be involved in. What we want to do is to try and come at the book of Revelation, understanding some unique features of it. I'm going to talk about this morning briefly some of those unique features that make it different from all the rest of the Bible. That makes it different even from the books of the New Testament. Okay, here's some of the questions. What is a revelation, and how does understanding Jewish apocalyptic literature, which is a lot like this, how does it help us understand what's going on in the book of Revelation? Who is Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation? What role do angels play in the book? Who is this servant John, and why in the world is he stuck on the island of Patmos? How did he get there? What does it mean to testify about Jesus? What are the sevenfold blessings in Revelation? And how can I claim them? What's the significance of the specific numbers used in the book of Revelation? What does the phrase, the time is near, mean? Because it occurs in the book of Revelation. Is the book of Revelation only about the past or only about the future or maybe both? And we have to settle that. And why is the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible? You ever thought about that? How come it's not before the book of Genesis? And we'll talk about that. It's place in the Bible. It's significant. Why is the book of Revelation so often misunderstood and misused? Uh, historically, there have been main system of interpretation toward the book of Revelation. And when you get to study it, that's important to recognize. You don't have to dive into all the particulars of it. But to realize that, unfortunately, there have been different systems of interpretation. And the sad thing is, this is what's so sad to me. Uh, there have been divisions in Christianity over which system of interpretation you used on the book of Revelation. Well, Satan wins in that argument. Are you telling me you're not going to fellowship each other all because you have a different view on Revelation? You've got to be kidding me. So anyway, we'll look at that briefly. Um, John testifies to what he saw. So what do we make of his visions? What are visions and dreams? And how do they fit into John's revelation that he shares with us? And why does God use the medium of a dream? 
uh, what was going on in the seven churches of Asia Minor that made the book of Revelation necessary? See, there was stuff going on in those seven churches that made this book necessary. Um, how cataclysmic is the battle between good and evil portrayed in the book of Revelation? And when you look at the battle as it's described, who wins that battle? How does Satan operate in the book of Revelation, and what is his destiny? And how can we understand the flow of the book when it seems to have repetition and new material all woven together? It's very difficult to come up with a structure and an outline of Revelation like it's so easy to do in other books of the New Testament. This one is different. And was the book of Revelation written in the late 60s of the first century or the 90s of the first century? And if so, which perhaps um, Roman emperor was on the throne? And why did the Christians feel uh, so threatened by imperial Rome? What is the new heaven and new earth? What are the end times like? And last of all, and this goes to Larry's prayer. I caught this in Larry's prayer. Are you ready for this? Last of all, how does the book of Revelation offer hope for us today so that we can actually apply this book? You know, not read it and think it's so strange we set it back up on the shelf. Well, as we get started, I want to describe what I believe is a very important way to approach the book of Revelation. This is crucial. And the phrase for it is called immersive imagination. And I want to give you an illustration that's going to help you see what we're talking about. When my oldest daughter was in high school, uh, her English teacher suggested that they go watch a movie. And they were supposed to watch this particular movie and give a report on it. Well, because it was rated PG-13 or whatever it was rated, she was supposed to have a parent go with her. And I, and I told Nancy yesterday, I wish uh, I could remember which movie it was, but for the life of me, I can't remember, okay? So anyway, we go to the theater, we watch this movie, and I'm sitting there the whole two and a half hours trying to connect everything and make sense of everything. And when the movie was over, we got in the car, and I said, son, I am so exhausted, I'm so worn out. What was that movie about? She goes, oh, dad. You no, know, you're not supposed to try to make sense of it. I said, really? She said, what you're supposed to do is just sit back and enjoy it and, and allow the movie just to draw you in into its world. I thought, oh, I went about this the wrong way. I was trying to study the movie, connect everything, make sense of everything, and it wore me out. And she said, no. And so... The book of Revelation is inviting us like a movie to enter into its world, sit back, allow ourselves to be drawn into it. And if, you, and if you try to figure everything out, it's going to drive you crazy. Okay. Here's another illustration that a, a Bible teacher gave several years ago, and I thought this was good. Those of you who love music and, and can read music and maybe even play an instrument, you have a music sheet in front of you. And you know how important it is to understand, you know, where the uh, notes are, do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do on the scale, uh, what key it's in, um, you know, all of the different things that you read on uh, the sheet of music and the paper itself. Well, what if you spent your whole life as a musician 
just studying the sheet of paper. That in your head, you thought you understand everything theoretically and technically about music, but you never played an instrument. You never sang. You never went to an orchestra uh, playing. You know, you, you really wouldn't be able to immerse yourself in the music and enjoy it and be part of it. And so we understand, yeah, there's an important part of understanding, but if I stop there, I've lost it all. So the question is, are we, with our minds, able to imagine ourselves being drawn in to John's vision such that we can almost close our eyes and see ourselves participating in the vision. John would be the first to tell us, I'm convinced, that the words he uses to paint the picture of his visions really don't do it justice. I guarantee you. Have you ever had this happen? I know you have. You've had a vivid dream. Oh, my. You wake up, and you're with someone, and you try to tell them how vivid the dream was, you know, and, and you're trying to figure out which word to use and how to describe it. And the person sitting in front of you has got this blank stare on their face. And you can tell the words you're using are not getting through. Words have their limitation. But the book of Revelation is such that the words that are used, that are used by John uh, are designed to invite us into the episodes and the scenes all through the book, okay? Now, Robert Lowry, who has written a book called Revelations Rhapsody, has proposed six principles, and I want to share these principles with you. They're simple, but they're powerful, and if you don't follow them, you're going to miss the book of Revelation. We First is the scripture principle. We study the book of Revelation within the context of the other 65 books. And what's amazing about the book of Revelation, it's at the end. Genesis means beginning. Revelation is the destiny and the end. And, and there's something else that's really cool. Do you realize in the book of Genesis that we're told that the tree of life was lost to humanity? Because Adam and Eve sinned, they were expelled from the garden, and they lost the right to the tree of life. In the book of Revelation, it comes up again. Because of Jesus and what he's done for us, and we participate in God's kingdom, we now have, humanity now has, the right to the tree of life. And it's eternal life. And so I would say that the theme of the whole Bible is the tree of life lost and regained. And when you get to the book of Revelation, there's some wonderful ideas connected with such that it doesn't matter how bad things get, when you're faithful to God, you're still going to have the right to that tree of life. Nothing Satan can do can take away that tree of life. He doesn't have that kind of power. So this morning, and I'll share more of this with you as time goes on, but I just wanted to share that with you because these principles that we're going to talk about as we go on are very important, and that's the first one that I'll share this morning. And then I think it's important that we, when we approach the book of Revelation, there's two attitudes. One is that of humility. We strive to approach God's written word with the willingness to allow God to impose his agenda on us, not vice versa. We don't impose our agenda on the word. So we can hear his word and live faithfully according to his word. 
And we have to avoid being dogmatic about using the book of Revelation to pinpoint dates and events as if we know exactly how to play, apply the book to today's events. And, and I think I've told this story once, but when we were living in Lansing, Michigan, I was in my office one day and somebody called up and they gave their name. They said, now, you don't know me, but I'm sitting on the steps of the Capitol building. Okay. And then they said, uh, and they read a passage out of the book of Revelation. Are you aware that this is going to happen this week? You read, read the passage out of the book of Revelation. And then I let him talk for a moment. I said, well, are you aware that there's another perspective on that? And all I heard was click. He hung up the phone. <laughs> so people have their own biased opinions. And, and we've got to step back and say, okay, am, am I letting Revelation speak to me? Or am I trying to force it to say what I want it to say? Now, we also have to honor the attitude of honesty. We must admit that the complexities of the book of Revelation are so different from anything else and that we don't know it all. But we allow the book of Revelation to inform our beliefs about the end times and be honest about changing our views if we have to based on what we come across in the book of Revelation. So that through the Spirit, the book of Revelation motivates us to faithfulness and obedience. Faithfulness and obedience. If that's what it does, then I think it's done what God intended for it to do. Let me give you another illustration. One time when we lived uh, in Lansing, Michigan, I was part of a, of a men's workout spa and thought I was at that time of my age, I was trying to get real buff, you know. Uh, and one day after a hard workout, uh, they had this great big old um, hot tub. I mean, it was huge. And I, one day I, I stepped into the hot tub and I counted like 20 guys in this big circle. And I noticed that one of the guys to my left, he started talking to people. And so one by one, after a quick conversation, I saw the guys getting out of the tub. And so he was like, he was working his way around and everybody was hopping out. And I'm thinking, what in the world is he telling people? So when he got around to me and I was the last one left in the hot tub, he goes, uh, I have seen Satan. Do you want to know what he looks like? <laughs> and then when he said that, I said, I can see why the other guy jumped out of the hot tub. I said, okay, tell me more. And boy, I mean, he had descriptions that were incredible. So when he got done, I said, um, now I want you to do something else for me. Can you tell me what Jesus is like? Well, he didn't like the question. And when he found out that I wasn't going to be receptive to all of his satanic stuff, he got out of the tub and left. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that. He wanted to focus so much on what he thought Satan looked like, and he saw Satan and all that stuff. When he got done, I said, well, uh, okay, now tell me what Jesus is like. Well, he wasn't about that. And I just thought that was so sad because for me, as I saw it happen, there went his Christian witness, if he had any at all, okay? So we have to be careful how we do that. Let's look quickly. Um, verses 1 through 3 that I read, I just want to go through this real quick. We're blessed, and I want to look at this paragraph through the first blessing. We're blessed by this revelation of and about Jesus. The mystery of who Jesus is going to be is revealed. 
And when we talk about this, it's about Jesus Christ, and he's the source of its message. And when I look in the book of Revelation, I'm amazed of all the things that are claimed about Jesus. First, he's the Alpha and Omega. That's chapter one. So what does it mean for Jesus to be the Alpha and Omega? Now, if we, if we were saying in English, he's the A and the Z. So, so what does it mean for Jesus to be the Alpha and the Omega? He's the first and the last. That when it comes to everything about purpose in this life, when it comes to everything about meaning in this life, and it comes to everything about uh, living the kind of life that prepares for eternal destiny, he's the first and he's the last. Uh, he's the lamb that was slain. So that, and, and this is amazing too, because not only is he worthy, art thou, but he's worthy as the lamb that was slain. Uh, you have to remember, John is writing to Christians where they've seen people beheaded. Okay. And he's trying to give a message of encouragement to those that are left behind so that what he's actually saying with the image that the lamb is slain, guess what? Folks, when you're trying to worship God, you're not only the first ones that are killed because of faithfulness. In fact, the Jesus that you're following, guess what? He was slain too for his faithfulness. So there's a, there's a purpose for this lamb. Uh, we also find that he's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And here's what we don't realize, and I, and I need to say this. When John claims that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth, that was a slap in the face to the Roman Caesar. Roman Caesars thought of themselves as divinity. They, they, they wanted to be worshipped as a divine. And the Roman Caesars felt like they were all powerful and everybody in the world ought to kneel down to them. The book of Revelation, if it doesn't say anything, it says this. Christians have no business and they don't have to kneel down to any worldly power. That's it. We don't have to. And we've got example. Jesus, beheaded witnesses that we're going to come across later on. In the history of the Christian faith, we can look to men and women of faith who refused to bow down to any political or imperial power that wanted to be viewed as God. Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He freed us. He's the sacrifice because he freed us from our sins by our blood. He's the root and the offspring of David. He's the bright and morning star. And so many other things all through the book of Revelation, we're going to find out about who Jesus is. It's really rich. We're also blessed by God's timing of all things. Twice, it says, these are things that must soon take place. I wonder if you caught that when I read it. And also that the time is near. And I don't think it's by mistake that in both the first chapter and in chapter 22, the last chapter, those are repeated again. These are things that must soon take place, and the time is near. The whole book is framed by that thought. So you think, okay, well, if John's writing it to the Christians of the Asia Minor, the seven churches, uh, they all died off, and we're here. Christ hadn't come back yet. And so some people say, in fact, I read last night, I'm like, and I thought, now I know it's late, but I can't believe this guy said this. One person said, well, because Jesus didn't come during the lifetime 
of these early Christians that are living in the churches, seven churches of Asia, then John got it wrong. That the time is not near and the time is not soon. I'm like, what do you mean John got it wrong? Could there be another option? I think so. This way of framing the message makes every generation, no matter how long the earth stands, ready for his immediate coming. I hate to tell you, but maybe, no, let's rephrase that. Maybe I'm glad to tell you. Jesus could come today or tomorrow. We don't know. And what's amazing is the end times in, in, in the thinking of the New Testament writers actually started at the beginning of Jesus' revelation or his resurrection. So from the resurrection of Jesus, the end times begin. And now we're in the end time. When people say we're in the end times, yes, we are. Every generation that's ever lived has been in the end times. Should we be, pre be preparing for the end of the earth and Christ's return? Yes, just like every generation should. Do I know exactly when he's coming back? No. Now, are things worse today than they've ever been? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I'll surprise you say no. When you read through human history, oh, my. Uh, I'm glad I'm living today instead of other times and other places in history. But humanity is just as evil and sinful. Maybe the only thing that's a little different, because I've had conversations with individuals about this, it may be that in our day and time today, but boy, I tell you, Rome didn't have anything over on us, but we feel like that sin in all of its manifestations, even in its worst, uh, is more public than it's ever been. Well, it's more public than it's ever been in our lifetime, that's for sure. And I would grant that. But sin's always been sin. Devil's always had his way on the earth. Uh, it's not going to stop. Uh, one of the things that, oh man, our time, let me say this, and then we're going to have to quit, because I've got a ton more I can share with you. And, and it, may be, it, it may be a blessing that the computer doesn't work, because I'm, I'm watching the clock, I quit. One of the messages that just came home to me after reading Revelation again, and we need to hear this, and it's about Satan. He's not all-powerful, and his time is limited. We need to hear that. He's not all-powerful, so don't believe those shirts that people used to wear. The devil made me do it. No, no, no. No, I'm sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> devil didn't make you do anything. Now, he may have encouraged you, and you may have listened, uh, but then number two, his time is limited. And in the book of Revelation, he's not going to reign forever on earth. No way. And so the, the joyous message as you enter into the book of Revelation and begin to step into that world is that God is all-powerful, and, and God is above time. In fact, the word, when it says the time is near, and I had this on the PowerPoint, and I'll end with it, it's the word kairos. It's not the word chronos. You know, we get our English word chronology. That's not the word John uses in Revelation chapter 1. It's, it's kairos. It's God stepping into time. It's the right time and the right opportunity for God stepping in. When God Have you ever thought about this? When God believes it's the right time for the world to end. What he hadn't told us was when that is. God knows when it is, but the time is near. And so I believe that one of the great things about the book of Revelation is when we dive into it, it's going to give us so much hope, so much encouragement to be ready when God steps in to human time and human history and stops it all 
so that we're now ushered into eternal destiny to be in his presence. And one of the neat things when we get toward the end of the book of Revelation is to look at all the ways that even though language itself is limited, John tries to describe the bliss of being in God's presence forever. It's, it's really cool the way he does it. So this morning, if you need to come to this Jesus, the lamb that was slain for you, who's paid the price for you, and you need to hear him knocking at the door of your heart and open it, won't you come while we stand and sing number 718?